Boker Tov, and Shalom, and to all those who have insomnia in the United States and are up late watching this live, we want to give you a special greeting as well. It's great to be here. We're glad that you came to Jerusalem during this time. Joel, just a moment ago, was quoting an old passage from the Mishnah, which says, the land of Israel is at the center of the world, and Jerusalem is at the center of the land of Israel, and the temple is the center of Jerusalem. So a lot of us feel a special privilege to be sitting here today in the center of the world, the center of God's program. This is where Abraham came to offer his son Isaac. This is where the prophets walked and spoke. This is the place where David reigned. This is the place where our Savior died and rose from the dead. And this is the place that the gospel went forth from, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we in the West want to say a special word of thanks to Jerusalem for giving us that special package of the gospel of our Lord. We love Israel. We love Israel. We love the Jewish people because we love Israel's God. And the covenant that he has formed with this land and the new covenant that he has formed with all of us who believe. Somebody once wrote a little sarcastic poem of sorts. Very simply, he said, How odd of God to choose the Jews. And somebody heard that and retorted back, But not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God but spurn the Jews. And so we voice our support for the Jews and the Jewish God. And we also recognize the great suffering that the city of Jerusalem has seen. Did you know that 36 wars have been fought in this city over time. It's been a place of great calamity. In fact, one of the early historians of Judaism, Josephus Flavius, once remarked, of all of the calamities that have befallen anyone, anywhere, they seem not to be comparable to those which befell the Jews. Some of you may have heard of that that ancient book, the Talmud, which has a passage that says, Ten measures of beauty descended upon the world. Nine were taken by Jerusalem, and one was dispersed to the rest of the world. But that same passage says, Ten measures of suffering descended upon the world. Nine were taken by Jerusalem, and one was dispersed through the rest of the world. It is remarkable what this people has suffered and this land has suffered over time. Some of you even remember Fiddler on the Roof and uh, Tavia, the father of the family, who says, 
God, I know we're the chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you choose someone else? (laughs) We're going to be examining today briefly some passages in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 36 and 37. And if you brought a Bible, that was good thinking because we want to look at some passages in it. Ezekiel was a priest as well as a prophet. And Ezekiel, though he knew that the people were God's chosen people, at the time of his writing, the people were in captivity in Babylon. There were three successive deportations of Israelis from Jerusalem and Judea to Babylon. The first took place in the year 605 B.C., And during that attack by the Babylonians and that first deportation, the young prophet Daniel was taken captive to Babylon. The second occurred in 597 B.C. And during that second deportation was when this prophet, the prophet Ezekiel, probably only 25 years old, was taken away with the captives to Babylon. Then finally and ultimately, 586 B.C., when the temple was burned and the city was destroyed with fire. The prophet Ezekiel speaks these words 2,600 years ago, but amazingly, we have been watching their fulfillment before our very eyes. Why is it that Christians love Israel? Why is it that among this country's most staunch supporters are believers, especially evangelical believers, in the West. Well, we, we love Israel because we love all of the promises that God has made and has kept to this people. In the book of Romans, chapter 9, Paul lists them. He says, from this people come the covenants, come the giving of the law, comes the service to God, and comes the adoption. We love Israel because not only of the promises, but the fulfillment of all of those promises that he made, and some of them, some of the greatest ones in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And we love Israel because this nation has been the conduit for the scriptures and for our Savior. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the blessing is promised. The blessing is promised. There is a declaration that God will pour out immense blessing on this land. That's chapter 36. In chapter 37, the blessing is pictured. If chapter 36 is the declaration, then chapter 37 is the demonstration or the illustration of what chapter 36 is all about. Chapter 36 of this book of Ezekiel promises a wonderful restoration for the people of this land. Back in 1897, when Theodore Herzl was imagining with some other leaders what could happen over here and announced that the purpose of the Zionist movement was to secure a homeland for the Jewish people He said, secured by law. He had no idea, they had no idea how dramatic would be that fulfillment. But here you are. You are sitting 
enjoying the fulfillment of not only what Herzl wanted, but what of this prophet predicted in these chapters. Now, when we say that the scripture is fulfilled, I just want you to know why we say that. We say that the scripture is fulfilled because we read the Bible literally. We take it literally. We read it in a very straightforward manner. We don't spiritualize it. Uh, some people would um, say the other, say the opposite. In fact, come against us for believing in a literal interpretation of the Bible. It's interesting that even some Christians in the West will say all of the Bible is literal and straightforward except when it comes to prophecy, except when it comes to eschatology, that somehow that must be figurative. We don't believe that. We simply believe God meant what he said, and he said what he meant. And we're seeing the fulfillment of it. In chapter 36 of this book, and of course these are long chapters, so we just want to highlight some verses with you. The prophet predicts the physical restoration of the land. In verse 1, he prophesies to the mountains of Israel. That is, to the land of Israel. And in verse 6, Therefore, the Lord says to him, Prophesy concerning the land of Israel, and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury, because you have borne the shame of the nations. Continuing in verse 8, But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled, and you shall be sown. God promises that he will restore the fruitfulness of this very land so as to sustain an increased population that would come afterwards. Now there is a phrase that is mentioned ten times in these two chapters. And it's the phrase, thus saith the Lord. Ten times God says, this is what God says. Thus says the Lord. Why? Because the whole idea at that time that Israel would ever be restored seemed so out of the question, so impossible. So God unmistakably says, I'm able to do it and I will do it. Thus says the Lord, what might seem impossible to you will be no problem for me. He's about to fulfill it, he says. I'm going to share a quote with you that at this point in history is laughable. It was penned in 1911 in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it said, the possibility that we can ever again recover the correct pronunciation of ancient Hebrew is as remote as the possibility that a Jewish empire will ever again be established in the Middle East. Close quote. That was 1911. A mere 37 years later, in 1948, and from then onward, not only do the people of this land speak a revived Hebrew, but they do so in this ancient homeland, contrary to what the pundits said. 
Now, the physical restoration was to be followed, according to God, with a bountiful population. There would be people that would stream to the borders of this land. In the 10th verse, the prophet continues, I will multiply men upon you, all of the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you men and beasts, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of their children. So not only does God guarantee that people will inhabit this land, and that this land will be able to sustain the increased population. But God guarantees the permanence of it. Did you catch that phrase? No more shall you bereave them of children. Listen very carefully. This land is an everlasting possession of the Jewish people. That was something God guaranteed when he gave it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was in perpetuity that they would have this land. God spoke clearly to Abraham in Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you, your descendants after you, for an everlasting covenant. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting covenant possession. Not only that, but the Lord promised through the prophet Isaiah that when he brings them back into this land the second time, they would remain in this land. The first time was after the Babylonian captivity. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel came back and rebuilt this city with about 50,000 others from Babylon. That was the first time. But listen to the prophecy in Isaiah 11, verse 11. The Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And I will assemble the outcasts of Israel and together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That was the first time. The second time, May 14, 1948. And here, 60 years later, 2008, we're in this city saying amen to what Ezekiel promised, what God told Abraham, and what the prophet Isaiah said. In the next several verses of chapter 36 of Ezekiel, the Lord makes an interesting prediction that once in the land and once populated by a large number of people that multiply within the borders, that he would set up this nation with world prominence and with prestige. In the 13th verse of chapter 36, thus says the Lord God, there's that phrase again, because they say to you, you devour men and bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation anymore, says the Lord God. 
nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations anymore, nor bear the reproach of the people anymore, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble anymore, says the Lord. On May 14th of 1948, there were a mere 80,000 people that occupied this land. That was the population base of the land. 80,000 people. And much less than half of them were Jewish people. Today, in the year 2008, 7.2 million people occupy this land. 5.6 million of them are Jewish inhabitants. A 43% increase due to immigration in this land. And what's astonishing is that those 7 million inhabitants are surrounded by 300 million unsympathetic neighbors. 7 million against 300 million, or should I say 7 million plus God against 300 million. Makes the equation much different. Not only are they surviving in this land, they are thriving with a $10 billion per year economy. The fourth largest grower of citrus in the world. Third largest exporter of flowers in the world. When I first came to this land, I worked on a kibbutz, a farm, and I saw the devotion of the people to grow and to spread those farms around the land. 1948, 400,000 acres were cultivated. Today, over a million acres are cultivated. Not only that, but think about it this way. The Jewish people on planet Earth make up only one-tenth of one percent of the population. But that one-tenth of one percent of world population has managed to secure one-third of all of the Nobel Peace Prizes ever given, and one-third of awards in music and science and art. So we have watched God not only bring them back and make the land fruitful and increase its inhabitants, but bring them to a place of prominence and prestige. And see, that's what we love about our God, isn't it? Not only does He make promises, He keeps promises. A promise is only as good as the one who gives it. Somebody once counted 7,487 promises that are in the Bible that God made to man. God will keep every last one of them as he has been so faithful to this land. With all of that said, there's another component that is in this chapter. Another promised blessing to Israel. And that is spiritual blessing. Spiritual regeneration. Beginning in verse 24, we read, according to the prophet, not only will the people be regathered to the land, but they will be restored to their Lord. Verse 24, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, 
and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you shall do them. That phrase, sprinkle clean water, was a phrase that originally referred to what the priests would do in the temple. Cleansing the implements of the temple, making them purified, even cleansing the dwelling places of the children of Israel and making them fit. It refers to purification and here to the cleansing of sin. It's what Jeremiah the prophet, while he was speaking here in Jerusalem, Ezekiel was speaking to the captives in Babylon, Jeremiah in chapter 31 calls it the new covenant. God says, I will establish a new covenant. And that is a fulfillment that we have seen by sending our Messiah into this world to do the priestly work of purification upon the cross 2,000 years ago and a work that is ongoing, we believe. Because Isaiah the prophet said that God would sprinkle many nations. And it's safe to look at this audience and know that not only have many of us come from the United States, there's some from other parts of the world that have come, and there's many thousands of others watching all around the world on the Internet. God said he would sprinkle many nations. God has a calling card, you might say, and it is prophecy. It's what sets our God apart from every other system in the world. God makes predictions, stacking the odds against him, and then fulfills the promises that he made against all odds. I could give you an example. If I had ten pennies in my pocket, and I marked them one through ten, And then I made a prediction. If I said, I'm going to reach my hand in my pocket and I'm going to choose penny number one, the very first time I place my hand in my pocket, the chance that I would have to fulfill that prediction would be one in ten. I have a one in ten chance to reach down and pick out penny number one. By the time I get to penny number two and I make the prediction I'm going to reach in my pocket and take out the penny marked number two, my odds decrease. I now have a 1 in 100 chance to fulfill that prediction. If I could predict and perform picking out all 10 pennies out of my pocket consecutively, 1 through 10, the odds would be 1 in 10 billion that I could ever do that. And so throughout the Bible, throughout the prophets, God makes prediction after prediction after prediction. He stacks the odds against him. And then he defies the odds by keeping all of the promises that he makes. All of these promises in chapter 36, God is making good on. And the ones that we're still waiting for fulfillment, we can look back to what he's already fulfilled. And if he's been faithful to fulfill those in the past, we can be confident that he will fulfill the rest in the future. So that's chapter 36 of Ezekiel, the promises of blessing. 
chapter 37 is the picture of blessing. If chapter 36 is a declaration, then again, chapter 37 is simply an illustration of what he said in chapter 36. It's the famous chapter, the famous vision of the dry bones that Ezekiel saw. The land, verse 1, or the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. Indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them. The skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open up your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. You see, Israel's restoration at that time in history, in the captivity, seemed absolutely impossible. They were as good as dead. Their nation was no longer alive. They weren't even in their own land. But against all odds, even in the midst of death, it would have taken a miracle for them to be restored. And that's the whole idea of the passage. Life is gone. Death has come. The nation is like bleached bones out in a valley. Only a miracle could restore them. God asked a question in verse 3. And God asked the question to the prophet. Can these bones live, Ezekiel? Ezekiel actually gave the appropriate answer. Look, you know. 
Can these lifeless forms ever function again? That question could have been asked in 1947 before the Jewish nation was declared as a nation. Can these bones live? That question could have been asked on May 15th of 1948 when one day after the nation was in this land, this land was attacked by five nations surrounding it. Can these bones live? That question could have been asked in 1967 when the Israeli army was outnumbered 50 to 1 and soldiers from Egypt and Syria and Jordan attacked this nation. Can these bones live? But one thing we know as we read through the Bible, that God sees every human impossibility as a divine opportunity. And every time God has let these bones live. Every now and then I'll meet somebody who, especially on a tour like this to Israel, they'll be in all of these sites and the stories of the Bible are told and they see the visual in front of their very eyes and somebody will whisper to me, I wish we lived in Bible times. (laughs) You do live in Bible times. The greatest time to be alive. Right before your eyes. What we notice in chapter 37 is that this restoration to life was not instantaneous. It was a process. It didn't happen overnight. Gradually the bones came together. And eventually sinews were attached. And then as a process, skin came on. It was a process that occurred. And so it was with this nation. In 70 AD, the land was attacked again by the Romans. The people of Israel were dispersed around the world for a long time. And then in 1898, Theodore Herzl called the Jewish people around the world to come back to this land, to drain the swamps, to restore the desert to a fruitful paradise. And then, as we've mentioned several times, May 14, 1948, At 4.32 in the afternoon, David Ben-Gurion, the first Prime Minister of Israel, proclaimed this, the land of Israel, as the Jewish state. After 2,000 years, the nation was reborn. And the very dry bones became a recognizable nation. Jerusalem. I love to come here and breathe the air because the ancients used to say, he who breathes the air of Jerusalem will be wiser. (laughs) So I love frequently to go. (sighs) You're in the center of God's program. Always has been, always will be. Jerusalem. Look at it this way. Jerusalem, as Joel mentioned, is the geographic center of the earth biblically. He quoted Ezekiel 5, verse 5, where God says, I will place Jerusalem in the midst, in the middle of all of the nations all around. You know, whenever you read in the Bible north, it's always north of this city. South is always south of this city. East and west always refer to Jerusalem as the starting point. 
It's the geographic center of the earth biblically. Not only that, Jerusalem is the salvation center of the earth spiritually. Just north of here in Samaria, there was a woman at a well, and Jesus had a conversation with that woman. They were arguing, or she wanted to argue religion, and Jesus simply said, We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. There is no other place in the world where salvation has been paid for. But right here, just outside the ancient city of Jerusalem, at a place called Golgotha, we believe our Savior paid for the sins of the world. It's the salvation center of the earth spiritually. It's also the storm center of the earth prophetically. And in a few moments, Pastor Chuck Smith will tell us some of those storms that the Bible predicts. Every world leader, every pundit recognizes that what happens in South America or in Europe may be important, but what happens in the Middle East, especially Israel, is all important. The Bible predicts that all of the nations one day will eventually come against this land, but that God will stand up for Israel. Which brings us to the final thing I want to close with. Jerusalem is the glory center of the earth ultimately. Ultimately. The law will go forth from Zion. The word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. And this will become headquarters as the Messiah reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. How odd of God to choose the Jews? Not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God but spurn the Jews. Yes, Christians, we love Israel. We love Israel for the promises made and for the promises kept. And we love Israel for Israel's God. And you know what? No matter what happens, no matter what we see in the news that unfolds, there's a confidence that we have, isn't there? It's like the little boy who was riding a train. He was all alone, seemingly, and there were passengers who were watching this little boy as they passed through a, a period of great storms going on outside the train. Thunder, lightning, it was loud, it was windy, and people were getting a bit nervous. There was one little boy, that little boy, who was whistling, singing, carefree. And an adult said, excuse me, why are you so unworried and we seem so burdened and full of care? He said, I don't know why you're so worried. All I know is my daddy's the engineer of this train. <laughs> He'd been on that train many times before, and he trusted his father that he could handle whatever would come. God, our Father, is our engineer. He has engineered this book. He has made promise after promise. And you today, this morning, are seeing the fulfillment of many of those promises. So all of the rest, we know, will be fulfilled in his time. Thank you very much.